All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Delivered by DoorDash. Welcome to episode 79, the Carter Hart, Andre Markoff edition of the DFO Rundown. I'm Jason Greger alongside Frank Saravalli. And Frank, uh, how you doing? Hope things are well. Uh, lots going on in the hockey world, especially in the NHL right now. Yeah, it was another really busy week. Lots of news and not really any savory news with um, disappointing news with Bob Murray and the situation coming out of Anaheim. Uh, our first instance, our first glimpse of the NHL hotline at work with an anonymous report coming in. And I'm told that actually Bob Murray was under investigation by Anaheim Ducks actually before a report came in from the hotline. So lots to unpack on the Bob Murray front and, uh, now the Anaheim Ducks, who were off to a great start, now have an interim GM in place with Jeff Solomon and some pretty significant questions to answer. Well, you know, so Bob Murray, for, for those maybe who don't know, uh, he resigned. He went into a, an alcohol rehab uh, facility uh, because of this. The, uh, the anonymous report was just verbal abuse. Frank had the article at dailyfaceoff.com outlining it. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Not just verbal abuse. I want to yeah. be clear when we say that you know, the one quote that was really damning in the story from a source to me that working for Bob Murray was quote, daily mental warfare. Um, this isn't just hockey guy, you know, yells and screams to get more out of people. This was someone that repeatedly crossed the line. Yeah. Well, with text messages to players threatening job security and stuff and other staff members, it's not, and the all thing over is trainers and equipment guys and just relentless. And and I, 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 the good news, I guess, is that the, the NHL, you know, them having this hotline allowed it because this, this is not like this just happened, Frank. This has been going on for a long time. And there's people in the organization and people who left the organization who knew it and they didn't do anything. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's one where, you know, I, I hope that Bob Murray gets all the help he needs and alcohol, but that doesn't, that doesn't excuse him for being an asshole for many years. Like, I'm sorry, it doesn't. No, I'm with you. And I agree. Um, there's a long, there's, like I said, there's a lot to unpack to the situation because in talking to people in and around the ducks organization, it also wasn't this bad five years ago, it has progressively gotten worse. And, and so the question that I think a lot of people around the ducks organization have been asking is what would this situation have looked like 
if alcohol wasn't involved? How different would the situation be? And their answer is a lot. And unfortunately, we, we won't have the answer to that, um, you know, because Bob Murray is out. And I think it says a lot that he is out, given where we are in 2021, that it's really rare to have a team or any business organization step up and say, more or less, you're gone. That's what the findings of, of the investigation were, that they could not have this guy continue to be at his post, even around the team for one more day. You almost never see that now. You say, well, this person has uh, some kind of substance abuse problem. We're going to help them get the help that they need. And, and they're going to help him, but this person doesn't have the chance to come back because of the actions. And it's, it's interesting, you know, just in, in the last, it's been a tumultuous 72 hours for the Ducks. And, and since then, you know, what happened yesterday was Bob Murray's making calls to people around the organization, apologizing and trying to make amends saying, I screwed up, I'm sorry, and I'm going to go get the help that I need. And so um, there were a lot of people that were angry two days ago, three days ago, and were angry for a while and then got the apology and saw how contrite he was and said, I just hope he gets the help that he needs. Well, you know, that's good for sure. And um, I, I guess the positive is that, you know, finally it stopped because no one was, you know, within the organization, like what would it take? It took it going public for them to make a change. And that to me is again, the issue that, you know, great for Bob being contrite and that's awesome. But it took finally a public complaint. The Ducks supposedly, as you said, Frank, were, were, doing, were reported in, in, internally for five years. Like, how much more do you need? Like, make a tough decision, for goodness sakes. I don't think it has anything to do with that. Um, from my reporting, my understanding is that the way that organization operated, first off, um, Hen owners Henry and Susan Samueli, like, they're, they're very hands-off. And so... Bob Murray had complete and total control of the hockey operations department. Every single person, you know, going up the ladder reported to him. And so to get past him and to get that to the owners, you needed to go around him and go directly to them. And, and when you're talking about people that don't have nearly as much power or clout or control, it becomes this cycle where bad things are happening and who are you going to tell? And so that's sort of this hotline gives people an outlet where, hey, it's anonymous. You know, no one needs to know who you are. Make the report and and something will hopefully get done about it. It goes to a third party, actually, not even directly to the NHL. But they let the Ducks and they let the NHL know as well, hey, we're in receipt of a claim like this and we're going to investigate. So it makes it really difficult. Like, I, I, I think everyone wants to sit here and point fingers and say, well, you know, why, why didn't the owners do more? What, what did they know? And when my understanding is not a lot um, that they, you know, Bob Murray was in such control that people are afraid for their jobs. And it's not just afraid for their job in Anaheim, the part of hockey culture that, that kind of stinks. And I hope, you know, really gets cleaned up as we move through this process is that if you were to cross Bob Murray in Anaheim and you wanted to go work in, I don't know, name another team, that person would be calling to check in with Bob Murray and say, Hey, what's this guy like? And, and probably wouldn't be getting a favorable report, you know? And so it, it wasn't just, you know, going around him for that organization. It's like, you can't, if you do that, you choose basically to not work in the industry anymore. And that makes it really hard. Yeah. I think it's a fear thing for sure. I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And, you know, it's one where every organization is going to have to look and say, we can't have one person with ultimate power where if, if they're a complete jerk to everybody else, there's, there's no consequences for that person. So uh, you I, know, I think that's where the president of hockey ops comes in too, is like a little bit of separation where, you know, that's one additional layer that you can use in the process. Yeah. And, and the owners though, you know, it's like anything, if you care truly about your company, then, you know, don't be hands-on when it comes to the hockey decisions but be hands-on when it comes to the human decisions. So you should be able to tell your staff, hey, if there's an issue with someone, you know what, our door's open. That's all you have to say. Don't come to me and say, hey, I wish we would trade for this guy. No, talk to the guys that are hockey people about that. But when it comes to humans and people, then uh, each organization should have some sort of um, structure in place to ensure that that, you know, a lot of by big all companies- By all accounts, Jason, Bob Murray did a tremendous job of managing up, was const in constant communication with ownership,
And everything appeared on the surface to them, to my knowledge, to be on the up and up that he, you know, has, you know, had this team be competitive for so long and that he's, you know, really good at his job and showing up every day and all, you know, not treating people well, like there, there didn't appear on the surface to, I believe the Samuelis to be anything off with the situation. Well, yeah, because it was only coming from the guy who was the one inflicting a lot of the damage. So exactly. That's, that's why I'm saying there needs to be another layer. Yes, I think I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, and I guess, the, you know, the one thing, a big positive for the Ducks, though, is that they're off to a good start. A lot of people didn't think they'd be this competitive. And what about Troy Terry, man? Like Troy Terry is the highest scoring American player. I don't think he was on anybody's radar at the start to be on team uh, on the Olympic team. Uh, you would think like he would be a lock for them right now uh, to be on that team. He's got 11 goals, Frank. He's got 19 points, only dry sidle. The only guys who have more points than him are guys who have all won the heart and the scoring race in dry sidle, McDavid and Ovechkin. Like it, Troy Terry might be the greatest surprise story in the last decade in the NHL. Well, surprise in what? Anyway. Yeah. His start and just the heater he's been on. Yes. I don't know necessarily a surprise in terms of his talent and his, and his productivity level uh, and the fact that he might have a chance to get there. If you go back and you watch him uh, at the world juniors, you watch him in his previous stops. Like this is a guy that had immense, immense talent. And so it's really been about finding himself and finding his, his spot in the NHL and how this all works and getting that experience because the talent has always been there. Yeah, but Frank, let's be real. Like last year, he had 20 points in 48 games, right? He has 19 no, it's an, points. It's an, it's an incredible step. No, I, but I'm saying he was touted to be this type of, this level of player. Yeah. Well, but was he? He was like a fifth round pick, you know, like he was a good player, but I don't know if anyone thought like this guy, like not many fifth rounders are touted to be that good at the time, right? Like Jamie Ben's a fifth rounder who ended up winning a, uh, an Art Ross. So it can happen for sure. But mm -hmm. um, I, I know he was a good college player. So maybe he's a little bit of a late developer, but even in his I first... think that's exactly the story is that he's a late yeah. developer in the sense yeah, that sure you watch him at the world juniors. Like this is a guy that had all that ability uh, on a really big stage to do this. He was already selected at that point. And so the Ducks were already kind of in the money. Troy Terry's off to a great start himself. Uh, the Ducks surprising. So are the Kings all of a sudden. They've won seven in a row. Jonathan Quick with his 55th shutout last night. Are you buying, Frank, the Ducks or the Kings? Hmm. I'm buying the Kings more than the Ducks, but I have to tell you that the Ducks give me a little bit of pause in saying that just because they found a way to do it differently almost every single night. And that's usually the makings of a pretty special team. And also the fact that there's been all this turmoil this week and they're two and zero on the road. You know, mm -hmm. you find out going to the rink, Hey, our, our GM's under investigation and is leaving our team is basically being kicked off. And you go out and you win both games on the road. Um, I really like the mental ability and it seems like Dallas Akins has been a, I bet at behind the scenes this week, he's probably been more therapist than coach. And that's um, I've always said that that's the number one requirement for a coach. You see the success John Cooper has not X's and O's it's getting your players to buy in um, and get the full commitment from them. And so I think that's happening in Anaheim, but when you look at the Kings, the fact that they're also doing it without Drew Doughty is, is really impressive. Um, can you imagine at a certain point and Sean Walker too? I don't, I don't want to minimize the impact of Sean Walker on that team out for the season. Drew Doughty, can you imagine taking him and then plugging him back in, given the level that he showed uh, prior to his injury? Like this guy was, you know, it's, it, it seemed like he wound back the clock three or four years with his start to the season. And then of course goes down with that unfortunate injury. Wow. Well, we spoke uh, Olympics earlier, and I think Drew Doughty, to his credit, he's never hid behind the fact that that was a major motivator for him. He was reading people who didn't have him on his list saying, oh, you guys are underestimating me. And, you know, that was a big injury for them. And they've been able to, so far anyway, uh, do well without him. And you're right. If they come back and, you know, he's scheduled maybe to be back sometime in December, that uh, he's going to be motivated to still maybe try to make the Team Canada list. And meanwhile, keep the Kings in it because they, both them and the Ducks, have young players, but they also have a lot of key veterans like Anze Kopitar, of course, uh, in Anaheim, mm -hmm. or sorry, in LA and quick. And then the Ducks like Adam Henrique and Getzlaff and, and Lindholm. Like it's kind of a unique mix, Frank. They've got some younger players and Troy Terry's obviously in Anaheim, but a lot of the, 
the mid-range veterans, I think, are the ones that have bounced back in both teams so far. Yeah, and you know what? Um, it's it's a really critical time for the Ducks, and not to keep talking Ducks, but this year in particular as part of their rebuild, it's fascinating to me that they're going with an interim and Jeff Solomon, who's really well-qualified, but the fact that the Samueli statement said, we're looking to have a permanent GM in place by next summer. It's like, holy smokes, like this year, just getting up to March or April, like you've got Hampus Lindholm, Ricard Raquel and Josh Manson all as pending UFAs. It's either fish or cut bait with this team. You know, you're either re-signing these guys or you're trading them for a large return to help you rebuild further. And so to have someone that's an interim in that spot, I, I get that they're the reason why they framed their statement that way was to allow for um, if they determine through their exhaustive search that the person that they really want or have their sights set on is an external candidate with another team currently that wouldn't be able to get out of his deal and come to Anaheim, that they'd wait until the offseason to do it. But there's a lot to tackle between now and then that you know, it's going to be really important for Anaheim. Actually, today on dailyfaceoff.com, our Steve Greeley takes a look with the negotiator at what is Hampus Lindholm's next contract look like? And can the Ducks really even afford to lose a guy like Hampus Lindholm as part of their process? Yeah, I think him and Manson are both key for that team. Uh, Ricard Raquel, you know, he's a winger, no offense. He's been a little bit banged up the last few years. If, yeah. if I'm picking out of the three, he's the easiest one to replace. Now, another quick one on, on a guy. Uh, two players having bounce back starts, Frank. Uh, Duchesne and Granlin. Granlin had a four-point night last night in Nashville. Uh, Duchesne, who just couldn't score for years, and he's another guy who was on an Olympic team before. Like, I just, I'm not saying he's going to make the team at all, but there's two guys in Nashville that, that are off to really good starts. You know, Granlin, I think, with 15 points now. Duchesne with, with 14 points. And, um, you know, they're, it's kind of interesting to see how many guys early have had either breakout years or really bounce back seasons. Yeah, you know, we were talking about the California teams. The other guy that I was thinking of pre-COVID and, you know, pre-issue was Eric Carlson. Like, all of a sudden, he started skating again, like the Carlson of old. And I'm like, man, that's pretty encouraging for the Sharks, given where he is and given that contract. But the Preds are so interesting, like seven, two and one in their last 10, 607 points percentage on the season. And I'm going this team for what they are on paper. And, and if you look at our preseason predictions, yeah. no one in our group at daily Faceoff had them in the playoffs, but the fact that they were way out of it last year at the start and clawed their way back in because of UC Soros. This is a team that, you know, isn't going away lightly, even though we all think that their window's closing. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think most of us, they were sixth or seventh on pretty much every board. And uh, uh, quickly, before we get to Tyler Ramchuk and buy or sell, the Colorado Avalanche, it's, it's one game I know, but it's amazing to me how some teams, when they lose a star player, it's almost like a wake-up call, and they absolutely obliterated the Vancouver Canucks. And there's kind of, you know, a lot of people are like, okay, here we go. Here's the Colorado team we expected. And meanwhile, is that Vancouver, Colorado or is it Vancouver? That's what I was just well, going to ask you. Hey, I don't know how many Vancouver Canucks games you watch this year, Frank. I've watched five I've or seen six. two in person. And I am stunned at how ineffective Elias Pettersson has looked in four or five of those games that I've seen. And, you know, I talk, I, you know, I read online, I watch uh, Sakaris and Drance and those guys. And it's, there's a lot of kind of head scratching and Pedersen just doesn't look like himself at all. Right the only now, time you ever notice him is when he has the puck on his stick on the power play. And that's really it. Yeah. My guy. And I don't care who you are. Like, I know they made some moves and you know, there's long-term worries about Oliver Ekman Larson, et cetera, but they're on paper. They should have been a better team. Garland and Oliver Ekman Larson are better players than the guys they traded out in that deal. I, I don't think and Garland has that. been, he's met every expectation. Yeah. And I think, Ekman Larson's been fine. Yeah. Their other best players just haven't been good enough. Simply. Yeah. You can't win if your best players aren't your best players on most nights. Yeah. It's, and you know, it's one of those situations where you look at where they're at in the standings. They, they really need to get moving. Especially when the ducks and Kings are on fire. Right. I mean, you got a lot of teams to try and giddy up and get past. Let's bring in uh, Tyler Remchuk for buy or sell. Yes, let's get into buy or sell brought to you by our friends over at DoorDash, where you can use the promo code RUNDOWNDD. And if it's your first time placing an order, you get 25% off and no delivery fees. Let's jump right into it. I got a couple Pacific Division questions to kick things off, actually. So it's a Pacific heavy show today on the rundown. But I mean, got, got to ask an Oilers one here. 
I'm going to say the Oilers have two Hart Trophy nominees this season. Frank, you buying or selling? Sure, why not? I'll buy that. I mean, they've both already won. They're both right up at the top of the scoring list. Why wouldn't they both be finalists? That's hard. I guess I think it's the last time was Lemieux and Jagger when they were ripping it up in 1996, and and the start yeah. that those two are off to. It's it's hard to argue that they could both be deserving of it. Like it's funny, but like Leon Drysaddle is just he's ridiculous good. I think his his if you put in face offs and playing on the three on five, like his all around game. Like McDavid's the most electrifying player in the game, but Drysaddle with the stuff he does defensively takes all the key draws. Man, he's he might be just as important. You guys touched on the Anaheim Ducks already a little bit, but I already had the buy or sell question written down, so it's coming through here. Getzlav, Lindholm, Raquel, Manson. I'm going to say two of them get dealt and two of them stay before the deadline. Jason, you buying or selling? Uh, I'm selling. I, I I think the only one who's going to get moved is Raquel. I think Getzlaff, there's no chance they're moving him, and I think that the Ducks might stay in it. They're not going to. You can't upend your back end. Two of your top four guys, they weren't there last year. It's illustrating how important they are to the team, and I think they'll do a lot to bring them both back. Yeah, I think the two that are going are Ricard, Raquel, and I wouldn't be surprised if Josh Manson went. For whatever reason, I think the value of Josh Manson on the market is greater than at least what previously the regime thought of Josh Manson in the Ducks organization. So hard to say with any degree of certainty today because obviously the regime has changed. But I think a lot of people have viewed Josh Manson in the Ducks organization as someone who's sort of hasn't been anywhere near the level he was at two or three years ago, pre-concussions. And I'm wondering if the rest of the league has caught up to that or if there's still a lot of real significant interest out there. You guys touched a little bit on the avalanche and how maybe the McKinnon injury is a wake-up call for a team that was below 500 going into last night. I looked at their schedule coming up. They get the Sharks, Canucks, Kraken, Senators, Ducks, Stars, and Preds to round out uh, November I'm going to say they're above 500 when Nathan McKinnon returns to the lineup. Jason, you buying or selling? Yeah, I buy that. I I think I, I, we talked about it a few weeks ago. Colorado struggles really circled around the fact that their best players hadn't really played up to their level. And it's only a matter of time before Makar dominates and Ranton and dominates. And obviously I was going to say McKinnon, but he's out. So Darcy Kemper, I know Frank had him as a, a guy he feels like is going to be in the Norris Trophy, or sorry, the uh, Vesna Trophy candidate. I think they'll all bounce back. So 100%. When you combine in their schedule, I didn't even look at their schedule, but the teams you listed off, I think that's very winnable games. Yeah, totally agree. I, I think that team, they better be. If they're not with that <laughs> schedule, then I think we're talking about something pretty significant, whether it's a coaching change or whether it's a sizable trade to shake things up for a team that had such big expectations. Our friends over at PointsBet have updated the odds to win the Western and Eastern Conference this season. And uh, the favorite out East is Tampa Bay. They're followed by Florida, Bo or Florida, Toronto, Boston, Carolina, and New York, the Islanders. I'm going to say my favorite value play is actually the Hurricanes at seven to one to win the Eastern Conference. They're fifth on the odds board. Frank, you buying or selling as the Canes as a good value pick, or are you giving me someone else? I'm giving you someone else. I'm giving you the Washington Capitals 15 to one. That team has been really good to start. Um, they really haven't had many hiccups. They're hard to play against. Ovechkin's been a beast. Like is Ovechkin the MVP through the first part of the season? Like he certainly would be in the conversation with some of the other guys that we mentioned. I don't yeah. know. I at double the price, 15 to more than double than the hurricanes. I like that. Yeah, definitely a more of a value bet. I would agree, but I'm, I'm still going with the one that I think is going to win. Cause to me, I can get a value bet or do I want the bet that wins? And I still think it's going to be the Panthers in the East. Fair enough. All right, let's move on to the West here where the Avs are big favorites at plus 250. Then it goes Vegas, Edmonton, St. Louis, Minnesota, Calgary, and Winnipeg to round things out. I'm going with St. Louis as uh, my value pick on this one at nine to one. Bennington's been great. I like the look of their blue line this year, and I like their depth up front. Jason, you uh, buying or selling on the blues at nine to one, or are you giving me someone else? Well, you're right as a value pick, the Blues, man. My, my only my only concern is their division's tough, and we just talked about Colorado and, and then maybe coming back a little bit. But um, at 9-1, to one, it's it's hard to go against them because they're, they're twice as good as Edmonton, who would have been my other choice. So yeah. uh, this time, I, I think it's pretty close, so I'll stick with the Blues as I mean, a value bet. How, how could you, even sizing everything up and looking at their starts to the year, 
You've got the Blues at nine to one, but you've got the Jets at fifteen to one. Like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, they Frank's were my a big team. Jets fan. I was a I was a Jets guy from the beginning, <laughs> just like just like Gregor was with the Panthers. So I got to stick with the Jets. But can someone at points bet also explain to me why the LA Kings are forty to one, whereas like the Kraken and the Sharks are thirty five and thirty to one? Yeah, there's I, no I mean... reason why the Kings should be way further down the list and at the very bottom of the table in the conference than some of those other teams. Yeah, I mean, the are Kings' they odds are twice as you? good as the Stars. Are they begging you to just throw a couple bucks on the Kings just for the hell of it? Yeah, the Stars, man. Can they even score a goal right now? <laughs> They're struggling offensively. But uh, that's the Jets, though, I like, Frank. Hey, you know what? You got to stick with it. It's early in the season. Yeah, the Jets, that's actually a good play. I didn't even see them at 15-1. to 1. I don't mind that. All right, there you go. That's a wrap on another edition of Buy or Sell presented by DoorDash. Now, we had a Hall of Famer on the pod uh, recently and uh, very excited to have another Hall of Famer on the pod today as she will become the first ever women's goalie inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, Frank Kim St. Pierre. Our next guest is one of the greatest goaltenders ever, period, full stop. She backstopped Canada to three consecutive gold medals in Salt Lake, Torino and Vancouver, and five world championship gold medals. She is one of the few women members of what should be their triple gold club with a Clarkson Cup win and Olympic gold and world gold. And now you can call her a Hockey Hall of Famer. This weekend, she will be the eighth woman inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. The DFO Rundown is pleased to welcome Kim St. Pierre. Kim, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And I guess start here. You found out almost 18 months ago that you were going to be entering the Hockey Hall of Fame. What has the wait been like, not just for you, but also your family? Yeah, it's been a, a long wait. Uh, I think it gave us the opportunity to uh, celebrate for longer. But um, all of us going through the COVID pandemic, um, I think uh, we had other priorities. We wanted everyone to be healthy. Um, and we knew that the day would happen. We just needed to be a little more patient. Uh, but everyone at the Hall of Fame, they, uh, they kept us in the loop. They, um, they kept uh, emailing us and making sure uh, we were ready for, for the big day. So um, it went by pretty fast. And now that we're uh, getting so close to it, it's very, very exciting. Yeah, no doubt about that. And, and you're right. It wouldn't be the same if you, know, you couldn't experience this weekend with your family like so many others before you have had the opportunity to do. And I guess these last 18 months have provided you with a chance to also look back at your career. I know you said just before we started that you've been working on your speech. When you look back on your career, what are you most proud of? I think it's all the teammates uh, that I was able to meet through the process, either starting uh, boys hockey when I was eight years old and I played up to 18 years old with, uh, with the boys. Then transitioning to women's hockey, I met some amazing women, amazing friends at McGill, and then with the national team. Uh, so for me, yes, the gold medals are, are fun, the world championships too, but once you retire, your, your pers perspective on life in hockey uh, evolves and changes. And, and I think from the day Lanny McDonald called me for to tell me I was inducted in the Hall of Fame, it's all about the people that you met that help you um, get to where I am today. So I'm so grateful for uh, so many teammates uh, that uh, had an impact on my career and many coaches as well. Kim, you mentioned growing up and uh, playing with, with the boys teams and, and a lot of girls still do depending on the enrollment in, in the community they play. But when, when you were growing up, there, there wasn't, there wasn't women in the Hockey Hall of Fame. And, and now, you know, you're the first goalie, uh, women goalie to, to go in. Can, can you kind of just talk about maybe how different that is and, and, and how much like the, the opportunities for young girls now, it must be so much different. And, and you must hear that from the young girls today, because when you were growing up, like the things you've accomplished, I'm not even you, if you thought was possible growing up. I think I was just playing hockey to play hockey. I was dreaming to play for the Montreal Canadians and that was it. So now to see all the opportunities for a young girl that's starting to play first, just to ask the, her parents, like for me, that was a big step. Like, I wonder what they, they discussed the day I asked them to play hockey. And, and when I started in, uh, to play hockey around like 86, 87, women's hockey was far from being, being an Olympic sport. So uh, yep. to see, like I was so lucky to see my sport grow so much. 
um, see so many little girls now. I have two boys. So when I go in the rink and I see so many girls walking in with their hockey bags on their shoulders, like it makes it so, so special to see where it's at. But so many pioneers were part of this, this, his, this history. And I think there's still a lot of work to be done just by having our own professional hockey league. Um, but definitely, uh, I, did, I never really saw it as a challenge. Like for me, if I wanted to play hockey, I had to be with the boys. So that's, that's what happened. And uh, thankfully, I was good enough at some point to make it uh, to transition to women's hockey. And it gave me a lot more opportunities because I was not drafted by the Quebec Junior Major League or I never made the Midget AAA. So all these important steps. I missed out. So um, I'm so happy that uh, maybe it took longer, but then at some point I was able to achieve my dream to, to be an Olympian one day. And uh, were you a goaltender right from day one? And if so, what was it about the position that intrigued you? <laughs> well, first I was a figure skater, um, but then I have two brothers and my dad would always build a um, an ice, uh, a backyard uh, rink. So I got to play hockey a little more. All of our neighborhoods were, uh, was coming to play hockey. So I kind of fell in love with the sport pretty quickly. Uh, I was a good skater for, from being a figure skater. So my parents were not too excited when I asked them to be a goalie, but it just happened. I was in the dressing room getting ready for practice and someone brought some uh, goalie equipment and they were looking for someone to, to be a goalie that day. So. I think my parents said only one practice and then we're moving on. Uh, but then it was so fun. Uh, nothing was exciting about the equipment because it was all old and brown, but I loved it. Uh, and then I was able to get one game and then another game and finally never took off the goalie equipment. Um, so I think it's just um, destiny uh, or also I, um, I watched a lot of the Montreal Canadiens game on TV and I was always... Uh, looking more at the goalies and Patrick Roy was there and by, they won the cup. And um, so, and my dad used to be a hockey player as well. He was drafted by the New York Rangers, never made it to the NHL, but um, I think growing in a sport and hockey environment was really, uh, uh, really exciting for me. And it led me to, uh, to do great things. You mentioned your love of the Canadians, Kim, and also your dream of playing for them one day when you were a little kid. You actually got to live that for a day, practicing with the Habs in 2008. What was that experience like? Take us back to that time. You know, we'd seen uh, Madden Rayum before you, you know, with the Tampa Bay Lightning way before you uh, break in with a, a preseason exhibition game. But to get a chance to practice with the team that you, you grew up watching, what was that like? Yeah, it was the, the closest I could come to uh, realize this dream of being a Montreal Canadiens. Actually, I was just getting ready for practice uh, with my uh, Team Canada friends from Quebec. We used to have like skills practices in the morning and I was at the rink and I got a phone call from Scott Livingston from uh, the Montreal Canadiens. He was one of their therapists and um, I used to work out with him and he helped me uh, overcome uh, hip surgery. So he knew about me and my commitment to the game. And um, that morning, Kara Price was, uh, was sick. So then he decided to call me. And they were not practicing at the Bell Center. I had to go to the, the Verdun, a small, um, small town not too far from where I was. Uh, so I just walked in, got dressed, stepped on the ice, and all the boys, uh, they were coming by bus because it was away from the Bell Center. So they didn't really know I was a girl. Some of them, the Quebec players, they knew me. They came and say hi. But most of them, I just think they didn't know what was going on. And um, I had so much fun, like 90 minutes of hard shots, intensity, and and I loved uh, every minute of it. How different was it for you, not just, you know, with the competition, but also, you know, if some of the guys didn't know who you were, like, what was the treatment like in terms of, uh, in terms of how they played where, you know, you said 90 minutes of hard shots. Did you, did you get any rockets your way? I got a few, uh, I got a few one-timers here and there, but I was so impressed how big the boys, the, the boys were because I'm 5'8", and I think the tallest on my team uh, was probably 5'11". So to see all these six six feet and more, it was quite overwhelming, especially on a, a screenshot and when you see them uh, getting ready for a one-timer. So 
but I wasn't scared. I had confidence in my equipment and uh, it was so special to be there with like Kovalev was there and Koivu and, and so many of them. So uh, yeah, it was a great souvenir. I remember being so exhausted after just for the, the stress, the emotion and all the media that was there after as well. But it made it special to, to be able to step on the ice with uh, the Montreal Canadiens. Did you get to keep your practice jersey? I actually used my own. So <laughs> it was a very last minute thing. So uh, I just used my own and it was from the Montreal Stars. So it was a great promo from our women's team here in Montreal. Uh, but there's great pictures online. And uh, yeah, it's a, a part of a little bit of the history. People always uh, uh, like that fact and ask so many questions about it. So, Kim, you mentioned um, you, you transitioned to the women's game kind of late, uh, you know, 18, 19. What was the was it an easy transition? Was it harder? Because the games are very different. So what, from a goaltending perspective, what was the challenge for you when you transferred from playing with the, with the young boys in midget to then now playing with the, you know, the best women? It was, uh, it was a long process. Uh, I think the, the ladies on the Martlets uh, McGill team, they had to be patient. <laughs> uh, transitioning from boys hockey to women's hockey, the McGill program was not the best uh, yet. Um, they were like into a transition when I came in in 98. And um, previously when I was playing boys hockey, I tried out for Team Quebec to be able to represent Quebec at national championships with um, the women's team. And I was cut like four times in a row, four years in a row. They told me I was not good enough. So my mentality towards women's hockey was not great, but if I wanted to keep playing for four more or five more years, I had to go. Uh, to McGill. It was my only option. Um, when I, once I got there, I, I asked myself a lot of questions. The pace was really slow. Sometimes we were not enough players. We had to do just half ice practice. So coming from junior AA boys hockey, uh, the shots were very slow, but I got to meet some incredible people that, that kept me motivated. And, and Peter Smith was the coach over there. And um, he just... Uh, it just gave me a lot of opportunities to, to get better, to be patient, knowing that the program would get better. And just a few weeks in, uh, when I got to Miguel, I got a call from the national team. Uh, I was a very unexpected, not being one of the best in Quebec and then being able to go and try out for Team Canada. So that day, my motivation was just really, really high. So I knew I needed to be better at Miguel to be able to have a chance with the national team. Um, but yeah, the, the shots were different, the speed of the game, everything was different, but now the program at McGill has evolved so much and, uh, uh university is so great now for, uh, for girls to, to play hockey. So Kim, would you then classify yourself as a little bit of a, of a late developer, really? When you, when you look at a lot of other players, you know, uh, maybe would have been an undrafted or a late round pick for people to get a sense of it. And then here you are, you end up being, you know, the greatest goalie Canada's ever seen. T talk about maybe your development then from the years of 18 to 22 and 23 and, and how you became so elite at that point. Yeah, I think, um, it was probably because of my parents that I never gave up. Like hockey was not my only sport. Like I loved playing soccer and fastball and I was a tennis player. So um, for me, it was all about playing sports and having fun. And for sure, hockey at some point was became my favorite sport, but I was getting very, very sad of not being drafted or not having any opportunities. And, and then I was seeing now women's hockey in the Olympics. So uh, at some point I was ready to give up on everything. Uh, but yeah, like so many stories we hear also in the NHL of some of the, the men's, uh, they just never got drafted, but at some point you almost need just one person to believe in you and give you this chance. And once you have the chance, then you have to make sure you play at your best and, and you won't have a second chance. So, uh, for me, it was Daniel Sauvageau that invited me to a team Canada training camp and, Right away, I felt that my confidence was so high and I played well. And then I got asked to play in a real game. And, um, and then once uh, I was able to make Team Canada my first year. Um, so I just think now I see my little kids are seven and nine and parents are so worried about getting extra ice time. And I just think that if you have to make it, you'll make it. For sure, it takes hard work. It takes luck sometimes as well. There's so many factors like injuries and uh, where you live and <laughs> I know money sometimes can be an issue for parents but for me it's all about if you're having fun through it you'll find a way and if it doesn't work out 
sport brings so many great experiences. So that's why with my boys, I just let them play. And then um, some are really good at their age. Some will be better when they're uh, like 15, 16. Everyone goes at their own pace. And I think that's what we have to respect. Yeah, that's so well said. I wanted to ask you, Kim, about the support that you received along the way from your family. You mentioned your father, Andre, drafted in the fourth round by the Rangers in 1970, played in the Quebec League, but also the influence of your brothers along the way. You said that they had played hockey, and I think that's sort of one of the common threads for a lot of the great women players is that they were pushed by their brothers a lot growing up playing that really helped them get to where they were. Oh yeah, exactly. Uh, my dad was, uh, was always there for me. He was a defenseman. So there was nothing related to goalies, but it was all about us as a family playing hockey. Um, I have an older brothers and a younger one. So, uh, we were always outside, uh, in the summer, we had our summer sports, but then in the winter, it was mostly all about hockey, um, and having a chance, like my dad had a hockey school in the summer for 19 straight years. So in Chattagay, he was taking care of so many kids and helping them. Uh, develop into uh, hockey players so um, it was just the the values that I got through all of this um, and all the boys I played with in Chattagay they made me feel like I was a part of their team like they never made me feel that I did not belong so um, for me if I wanted to be a hockey player I needed to play with the boys so and I always played for the right reasons I was not looking for major sponsorship or just to attract the media. It was all about having fun. And I think that just being a hockey player helped me cope with all of this because in the summer I would play soccer and fastball with girls. So mm -hmm. I had opportunities where I grew up to just play with girls in my summer sports. So then winter was different and different environment. But I think it really helped me grow my confidence, like being the only girl, being the goalie. Right away, that was something different. Uh, a lot of people were just looking at me, hoping I would fail. Some would hope that I would succeed. So I, at some point, I just had to, with my parents, just say, okay, you go out there, you play, and once we're done, we go home. Like, uh, they never put extra pressure on me. So I think that really helped me just play hockey and not worry about anything else. There's, there's such a purity to your story, Kim. Um, you know, just the fact that, you know, you, you, you fail so many times trying to make women's teams that we almost don't end up telling this story today of Kim St. Pierre as a Hall of Famer. I wanted to ask you about the end of your career. Um, you, you mentioned your two boys, Liam and Aiden, seven and nine. So mm -hmm. when you had them, I guess I'm, I'm replaying the, the years here, you would have only been in your early to mid thirties. How did you make the decision to, to start a family and, and how tough was that given, you know, the success that you had in your career to say, you know what, I've achieved all this. I'm going to put this aside because I have something bigger that I want to focus on. Yes. I think my husband was very, very patient <laughs> to let me play hockey as long as I wanted to. So I think that's what helped my transition to the real life that I had no regrets, that I, I had played so many years with the national teams, like nine world championships and three Olympics. And so I think I had enough at some point, but also I wanted to start a family. Uh, but being an elite athlete, you almost believe that that's all you're gonna do in your life because you're so good at it. You've been doing it for so long, it's your expertise. So to let go, it's kind of hard. So. Uh, I had Liam in 2012 and I was like, I'm just going to go back to the national team. Like, that's all I want to do. Uh, but coming back from, uh, from this life had changed. My perspective on hockey had changed and to, to leave my little boy and then go on weekend trips. Like it was not the same field, the same love I had for the game because I was ready, I guess, to transition to, um, to real life. And then I had Aiden just like 18 months apart from Liam. So trying to go back and feeling that with the national team, they had move on and, and it was the right thing to do for them. It was just for me, uh, it was just hard to say, I don't want to play anymore because I loved it so much. Uh, but definitely, I guess it was good to try again and then made sure, okay, I'm really done with hockey. And then we started our, uh, the, the family with two boys. So uh, it was the right timing. I have no regrets and I'm so happy with my two boys right now. 
Kim, when you look back on your career, the Canada-U.S. rivalry for many years was pretty intense. And, you know, we've had Cammy Granado and Haley Wickenheiser on, and, you know, they played against one another. For you, how was it from a goaltending perspective? Are you a, like, you're a fiery competitor? Or are you pretty calm? How would you describe your persona in those heightened games against the U.S.? A little bit of both. Uh, <laughs> I remember being so scared my first year um, playing Team USA. I'd seen them on TV and I, I got scared on my first game. After the first period, it was 3 nothing. We were playing in a small rink in Finland. I was alone. My parents were not there. And I really uh, was intimidated uh, just to see them. And uh, they were so good. And then Daniel Sauvageau decided to pull me after the first period. And I think that was one of the best moves because uh, I don't think my confidence would have been the same. I understood and then I learned a lot from, from that game, but um, the rivalry through the years, it, it was always our favorite games, like playing Sweden and Finland, like, yes, sometimes they were tough games, but the US games were always so special. Even exhibition games, world championships, for sure Olympics was even bigger, but uh, and especially that the fact that we were always three goalies with the national team and we don't get to play too many games. So whenever you're the starter for, for these games, um, you prepare so well and you always want to be the winner uh, on the ice. So uh, I learned a lot through my preparation, the focus, the mental prep and the physical prep that went into these games. And um, I think it really helped me uh, become the, the goalie I am today. For a goaltender specifically, because, you know, I, I played forward and I actually played defense a bit. Th there's not the same pressure because if you screw up, there's usually somebody behind you. There's not that for a goalie, Kim. So you talked about being scared that first time against the USA, and that probably was the biggest game you'd ever played to your life at that point. So how did you become mentally tougher? What did you do to ensure that, you know, you would be confident in those big games moving forward? Well, the leadership that we had on the national team when I started, my first world championship was in 99. So I started 98, 99 season. And like Therese Brisson was there and uh, Cassie Campbell, Jaina Hefford, Vicky Sanahara. So um, I think to open up to them or just to see how they were there to help us, the younger players. Like the, for my first year, I was there with Caroline Ouellette and it was a little bit the same how we were intimidated to, to make a senior national women's team. And especially for me, not having a lot of experience or no experience at all on the national level or international level, but these women that were in the dressing room, the impact that they had on my life is incredible. Uh, I remember just, let's say, doing media interview in English. Like I was just starting to learn English that year. And and I remember I was just trying to see what Cassie Campbell was saying and I was trying to repeat the same just to make sure I would do the right things and I knew she was really good on, on TV. So uh, I really think it's the, the teammates that I had that year that made it like, don't worry, we're going to be there for you and, and um, just take your time to, to get more experience and then you'll be able to win some games for us. So definitely um, to be surrounded by great people made it uh, a lot easier for me. Tell us about, Kim, the experience of winning gold on home ice in Vancouver in 2010. It was very special. And I knew they were, uh, these were my last Olympic games. So I wanted to, <laughs> um, every day was so special. My parents were there, my friends, my brothers, uh, my husband too. So, um, and to be able to live this in your own country is very, very special. Not too many athletes have a chance to do this. So, um, it, it was such a wonderful final game as well when we saw Marie-Philippe Poulain like scoring two goals and Shannon Zavados was the starting goalie and she did she was perfect like she it was so incredible to see her perform like this in the in her first Olympic final and yes I was on the bench but uh, it did not matter um, I had trained so hard I, I had done everything that I could to be the best I could be and then Mel Davidson decided to go with Shannon so I just wanted to make sure I, I enjoyed that last uh, Olympic final for me and to be able to celebrate with, with everybody uh, and being in Canada. And just a few days later, we, we saw the men's team winning gold uh, in overtime with Crosby. So uh, it made it very, very special. And to finish off with the closing ceremonies, I'm like, okay, it's done for me for the Olympics. And, and I ended up playing one more world championship in Switzerland the following year. And then I went on to, uh, to start my family. So yeah, very special in, in Vancouver.
Yeah, what a send off that is. Uh, last question for me. Tell us what you're up to now. I know you've done a little bit of TV work, but you're also an advocate for physical fitness. Yes, so uh, I started a few months ago to work with RDS in Montreal. So I'm a hockey analyst. I go uh, on TV once or twice a week. So it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. I'm learning a lot through the process. I'm working on the women's game and and sometimes I comment on the Montreal Canadiens or NHL. Uh, so that's that's a lot of fun. And in my everyday life, my full-time job, uh, I work for Box, B-O-K-S. So it's a charity organization. And we offer um, many, many resources for kids to get active. So everything is free. We're um, working mostly with schools. So we have more than 3,000 schools in Canada. So we just want to promote, um, help teachers bring more physical activity into their classrooms or gymnasium. Um, and I have so much fun with it. Sometimes I work with the, the kids. I go and make them move or I do training. I help... Uh, every school staff to just bring more physical activity and make it fun for the kids. So I've been working with them for, for six years. Uh, we have a great team. And, and for me, it's funny because my passion for physical activity started when I was in elementary school. So when I got this opportunity, I'm like, why not inspire the kids to not maybe become an Olympian, but just discover this magical world of physical activity and sport. And uh, it's very rewarding to hear stories, to see see some kids that are too shy to join a team or um, girls. We want girls to be a lot more active. So with our program, it's non-competitive, very inclusive. Uh, so tons of funds for, for schools in Canada and families now uh, can also um, apply and get all of our resources for free. So pretty proud. Awesome. Okay, Kim, we always like to end our interviews with what we call rapid fire. There's only one rule. You have to answer the questions, okay? All right. So uh, here we go. So Kim St. Pierre, it's been uh, 18 months. What was your drink of choice when you celebrated and found out you were going to the Hockey Hall of Fame? Uh, red wine, for sure. Not the whole okay. bottle. I shared the bottle, but uh, <laughs> red wine is, uh, is my favorite. Who was the first person you called after hearing from Lanny McDonald? Well, I was with my boyfriend, my husband and my two kids. Uh, so I had to, I called my parents. Uh, I think it was my mom first and then my dad second. Were, did you know when Lanny called what he was calling you about? A little bit, yeah, because <laughs> I knew it was the day and then uh, having a 416 number showing up on my phone. It was a day off in Quebec because it was Quebec day. So I was not working. So definitely I got very curious and, uh, <laughs> and answered my phone. Now you only get one to start game seven of the Stanley Cup final for your beloved Montreal Canadiens, Carey Price or Patrick Waugh? <laughs> well, that's the first time I get asked this question. I have to go with Patrick Waugh. Patrick Waugh, well, hey, that's your childhood. I totally understand that one. Now this one's for fun. Uh, I'm sure you know, you're, you're the first uh, woman goaltender going into the Hockey Hall of Fame. There are five forwards, Cami Granado, uh, Angela James, Danielle Goyette, Jaina Hefford, and Haley Wickenheiser. You're in a shootout. What is your record against those five? How many saves? Uh, I hope I get I get five of them. <laughs> no, but all skilled players, very different players as well. Uh, I got to play a lot of games with or against uh, many of them. Angela James a little less. She was more in my uh, in the beginning of the women's uh, national team. Uh, but I feel so privileged to be inducted and, and joining this amazing group. So yeah, hopefully so, I, I would not let them score. <laughs> okay, I like it. Now in all of your career play, who was the one opposing forward that just pissed you off? They were always in your crease, always in your face. <laughs> Angela Ruggiero, always in my crease, always there. She she had that mentality of wanting to to be this kind of player and uh um she did so much for for women's hockey but definitely playing against her was uh always very very special and and um cammy granado when i first started uh i was not that i was scared of her but i knew how she was so skilled and fast and good hands so uh, for sure when she was on the ice i always made sure i knew where she was but because she was uh 
very, very challenging and especially on the power play as well. Uh, I remember one save I made against her. I think it was my first tournament. It was in Montreal. It was a three nation cup. And I think it went into shootout and it's one of the save I always see in the montage that we see on TV. So uh, it's always so special to see that save. Now, Ken Holland's going in uh, in a builder, uh, a pretty illustrious group of you Hall of Famers. Uh, he, of course, was a goalie as well. Uh, he said, clearly, you're the best goalie of the group. But Ken Holland went on from a goalie. He says goalies are really smart. Would, and, would you like to ever be in management in either the women's or the men's game? Yes, I really like that side of the game. Um, I'm glad he said goalies are smart because usually people say goalies are weird. So I like this the being <laughs> smart. Uh, coaching, um, I like to coach goalies. I would ne never take on a team. I, I have a lot of appreciation for coaches. Um, but now I like more the other side of the game, like the management, the hockey operation, the, yeah, the admin of, of a hockey team. I really hope that we get our women's professional league because I'd love to work with the team in Montreal. Uh, I know that so many women now have a chance to be a part of uh, some NHL teams. So I think it's so great. Uh, they get hired because they know the game. They played the game. Their expertise is amazing. Um, so having a chance maybe one day to, to step up as well uh, in the NHL would be something uh, very valuable. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, for now, I'm happy with, with, with what I'm doing. And Kim, you said goalies are weird. Did, were you superstitious? <laughs> No, that's why I had a talk with a teammate uh, not too long ago. She needed to know what was your superstition. And um, I was more on the low key, like nothing. If someone touched my equipment, I was I didn't go and worry so much. But it was just the way I got dressed or the way I stepped on the ice or finished uh, my warm up. So many, many little things, but that they did not become too crazy uh it, they were just helping me to stay focused to get into a routine and prepare the same for every game that i played uh but no not crazy no crazy superstitions and lastly how many um additions of your speech have you written <laughs> every time i look at it uh i need to i need to stop looking at it i think uh <laughs> I think the message that I want to get through on Monday night, uh, I know what it is. It's just the wording now and when I'm going to switch to French and do English. And uh, But for me, it's all about celebrating it with everyone that will be there. Um, and so many people that can't make it, but they know they made a difference in my life. I can't talk about everybody in that speech. That's what makes it really, really hard. But um, I think my success is, is my team's success. So it's all about celebrating with with teammates along the way and coaches so and my family especially <laughs> well well kim congratulations it's well deserved uh, an illustrious career you're going into the hockey hall of fame uh you will officially be a hall of famer on monday uh, enjoy the entire weekend uh, leading up to it uh, and on behalf of the dfo rundown congratulations thank you so much there's hall of famer kim st pierre frank what a story I love the fact that she was cut from so many girls teams that she almost, she was like, you know what? I'm going to focus on one of the other sports that I play really well. And now she's in the hockey hall of fame. Like, could you imagine, you know, watching her acceptance speech on Monday night and being one of the coaches that cut her repeatedly? Yeah. Well, it just illustrates that, you know what? Hockey is still funny enough for a lot of people. It's a late developing sport. And the other thing, when you watch her speech, remember she never spoke a word of English until she went to university. So impressive to have that. Um, you know, just listening to her, as I said, uh, when we went offline in the interview was, it, it was great talking to you in English. I can only imagine the way you break down the game in French in your native tongue. And so, um, you know, to hear her on RDS, I wish I could sort of comprehend a little French. I can translate it for you, Frankie. Okay. Um, right. uh, it was fun talking to her in French. I don't get to talk French as, as often, although my son's now in French immersion. So, uh, I think he might know more words than I am. It's been Such a while. Such a good skill to have. It is uh, it is great. It'll be an interesting weekend. Of course, it's the Hall of Fame weekend. All the inductees, uh, of course, Kim St. Pierre, Ken Holland, Doug Wilson, Jerome Ginla, Marion Hosa are all. Am I missing? Am I, I think I'm missing someone. I'm not. I don't think so. Kevin Lowe, of course. Kevin Lowe. 
So yeah. uh, there we go. There's uh, the six Hall of Famers this weekend. It's a huge weekend. Uh, so congratulations to all them and their families. I love that they changed the venue, Frank, so more people can bring bring their friends and family to be there for a, a unique event that they've waited longer than a lot of other people since they knew they were going in uh, 18 months since, well, I guess just under 18 months yeah. since they got I'm looking called, forward so. to being there. It's one of my favorite nights of the year. Well, have fun, Frank. Pace yourself. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Cervalli and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Delivered by DoorDash. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. And let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear, and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.